Hey everybody, this is John Bow. I just want to apologize for some of the audio on this episode. Long story short, I thought I lost a lot of audio and ended up finding it, but some of it is not the best quality. There is a little bit of static on some of the audio. Sorry about that. Also, just a quick warning, there is a bit of discussion about drug use on this episode. The story of Jerry Herman's Mac and Mabel musical is fascinating. Hopefully you'll enjoy this two-part, very special episode. Critics agree. Mac and Mabel has landed with all the zip of a wet, very dead flounder. A rather elementary success. Gloomy. Basically, noise trying to pass for enthusiasm. Clive Barnes of the New York Times calls it a musical with book trouble so bad it's practically library trouble. What went wrong with this Broadway bomb? Find out next on Flop of the Heap. Flop of the Heap's mission is not to bash, rip, pan, grill, or flambe the Broadway productions we explore. Nor are we here to put performers and other artists down. More importantly, we also recognize that part of the creative process is failure, and believe facing those failures with a critical but genial attitude should be the norm. There can be no success without failure. After all, you can't spell hopeful without flop. (laughs) Welcome to a very special episode of Flop of the Heap, the best podcast on earth to tell you... (laughs) The History of Broadway Flops. Um, Special guest host today, Mr. Connor McAndrews. You might remember Connor from the Anyone Can Whistle episode, right? That is correct. The Anyone Can Whistle episodes, if I'm not mistaken. Episodes. That that became a double, and for good reason. Um, I I introduced you as an artist last time. Do you want to... What what have you been up to lately, Connor? Uh, I sang in a cabaret last month, and... I'm almost finished getting my MFA in device theater and performance. <laughs> Woo! It's we're so close in May. It's happening. I'll be done, and then who knows what, right? But no, hey, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> then fan. you'll be then you'll be bartending with an MFA. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. It. But I'll be doing with Flair. <laughs> Since the last episode, I had got COVID for the first time. Oh wow! Yeah. Did you have a lot of symptoms? No, not really. It was it was in July, and I it was like the middle of summer, so I just had like ten days off, and I watched all of Stranger Things and kind of put it around my apartment. <laughs> and and, and you're, terrible. you're triple vaxxed and boosted and all that, so yeah, quadruple. I've had the I had four shots, all the things. Yeah, yeah, so, I had gotten yeah, I mean, two when I got COVID, and it still hit me like a ton of bricks. I was really sick. Ugh, anyway, let's talk um, about more different but enough, things. enough about COVID. Let's, <laughs> let's talk Jerry Herman. So, uh, the the show we're tackling today for you folks is Jerry Herman's Mac and Mabel. Now, this show is unlike a lot of other flops that Marla and I have tackled in that I know it very well. Um, I've seen it on stage several times. I know the score. Like, I've listened to that album many, many times before today, and... In preparing this week, I've listened to it another, like, three dozen times. (laughs) Um, So I'm really excited to delve into Mac and Mabel. It's such an interesting show, and like every Jerry Herman musical, has some amazing music. Um, uh, Do you have any uh, 
any preface you'd like to to say before we dive in? Um, actually, you were my entry point to Mac and Mabel, if you can believe that. Um, I, like I was? 10, like, like 10 years ago, when we did a Valentine's Cabaret together in Ocean City, you sang I Won't Send Roses. And I was like, this song is beautiful. How have I never encountered it in my life? And then I discovered it oh, and listened to all God, of I Mac and Mabel. I yeah, you did you? You were great. It was again. It was like you sang it really well, and it's a great song. Thank you. Bam, 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 no, it's bam, a, bam. It's, a, it's such a poignant, lovely song. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I remember Michael Hartman, the artistic director there, saying he wa- he didn't want like love song after love song. He wanted a couple of those like love song but not a love song moments, which we that is definitely one of them. Such a great mm-hmm. tune. I love it. Um, yeah. All right, let's jump right in because we have so freaking much to talk about um so we're gonna start with googling all night we're gonna google all night we're gonna google with connor um mac and mabel when did it open it opened october 6 1974 when did it close it closed november 30th 1974 okay so How, how many previews did it have uh, <laughs> lucky number six previews and lucky number 66 performances, which makes a grand 666. <laughs> Scary. All right. Uh, did you find anything about the budget and loss? No, that was the one thing I could not find any numbers on. All the sources I have don't. Because I, I, like Jerry Herman, I, I have his autobiography here, and he doesn't talk about the budget at all. He talks about how David Merrick oh, like, didn't not. put any effort into it, but there was no budget. Well, also, much like the last <laughs> couple of episodes, all of it is the answer. Yeah, pretty much. Um, also, that just the format thing you sent me says cast recording, and all I wrote was slaps. All you wrote was what? Slaps, as in the cast slaps. recording. Slaps. Oh, yeah, slaps. <laughs> um, I did read one article that said David Merrick had $850,000 in the show, so that's an estimate of what his percentage was. I imagine the show cost more than that. It was probably upwards mm-hmm. of a million or more. Um, uh, what theater did it play at? The Majestic. Long, long-time home of Phantom of the Opera since 1988. Uh, which is closing April 16th, and I am going to see uh, uh, my final Phantom sometime in March on my next layoff. Oh my God, yeah, and also I want to see it one more time. I've seen it thrice, and I still and then I also I saw, saw the I new saw it three times as well, all like back when I was in high school and and beyond. Yeah, um, and so yeah, first? it's first show. Yeah, it was my first ever Broadway show. I was in sixth grade. Changed my life forever. That's this history. My first show was Beauty and the Beast, and there was a show stop. I'm sure I told you that story. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, go ahead. (laughs) Pain could be deeper. Um, It's like 30 seconds from the end of the act. Like, exactly. That's the final song of Act One. There was a show stop for 20 minutes, and then he, the Beast, came back on as the the castle got stuck or something, and it was just like boom, right back into literally 20 seconds of music, and then another 20 minute break. So dumb. Uh, But I loved it because I'm a theater kid. Uh, Majestic. Uh, we already talked about Majestic uh, recently on Breakfast at Tiffany's, and also Anyone Can Whistle, actually. Um, That's right. Uh, known for 42nd Street, Little Night Music, Music Man Fiddler, Carousel Camelot, just an amazing history of the Majestic, and one of the Broadway theaters built by Mr. Herbert J. Crap. <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, on your flop list, I was going to ask, these are just other things that played the Majestic. Do you have the ballroom or the act in your list? The act I know is on the list. The the ballroom? 
No, it's just ballroom. Oh. Sorry. Oh, ballroom, like ballroom. No, dancing. the ballroom. Yes, with um, Dorothy Loudon. It's the uh, the show that has fifty percent in it. Oh. I'd rather have fifty percent. Ballroom. I'm adding it. Ballroom. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, You're so welcome. paint a picture of 1974 Broadway. Besides the garbage and the porn, what was running in New York simultaneously with Jerry Herman's next big show? Okay, here we go. Angela <laughs> Lansbury and Gypsy. Yes. Um, the Wiz was kind of the big show the that Wiz. year. The Wiz. In fact, Jerry Herman suggests that Mac and Mabel was forced to close so that The Wiz could come in and play the Majestic. The Magic Show. <laughs> Starring everyone's uh, favorite goofy toothed leading man, Doug Henning. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only. Um, one and only. Shenandoah. Oh, okay. Raisin was still running. Yes. Um, uh, Lorelei uh, was running. Yes. And then also the Rocky Horror Show. Oh. Which the Rocky um, Horror Show know... only ran for like two weeks or something, but like. See, I thought that that production was originally off Broadway. It was in London, and then it was in Los Angeles. And then after Los Angeles, they were like, yeah, we're going to make it to Broadway, and it's going to be awesome. And then it ran for, like, two weeks or something. It, and like, it didn't run didn't at run. all. And it was, like, and it had, yes. like, Tim Curry and Meatloaf and all of those people were Oh, it. wow. But it was super sh- and just but of absolutely, course, like, panned. That's crazy. Of course, not mm-hmm. on the flop list because it is one of the biggest hits of all yeah. time, despite its yeah. short Broadway run. Now, uh, the Sherman Brothers musical was on Broadway at the same time. Over here, you familiar with that one? No. Really cute. It's uh, like an Andrews Sisters send-up, and two of the three original Andrews Sisters were actually in the production. Um, And uh, what else? Grease was still running at the time. That was a long-running show. Um, Music and lyrics. Music and lyrics by none other than Mr. Jerry Herman, um, of course known for Hello, Dolly! and Mame and... Lacage, Milk and Honey. So this this show, it's after the success of Dolly, after the success of Mame. This was supposed to be a hit. Like Jerry Herman was untouchable. You know, there all the pieces were back together. David Merrick, uh, Michael Stewart wrote the book, which we'll get to next. It, it, mm-hmm. All signs pointed to a hit. Robert Preston, you know. But this was also just after the flop that was Dear World which I keep trying to push on you to do on the podcast. Oh, okay. After Dear World. Okay. I always forget that one. Mm-hmm. Mame was 66, Dear World was 69, and then Mac and Mabel was 74. And then also the Grand uh, Tour was after this. Is that on your list also? No. It's a Jerry Herman, and it was directed by Hal Prince, and it starred Joel Gray. I think it was 77, 78, I think it maybe? is on the list. Grand Tour and Dear Dear World, I know, is. I always forget yeah. Grand Tour is Herman. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, okay, so I just said book by Michael Stewart. Tell us a little bit about uh, Stewart. Michael Stewart. Um, he wrote the book for Hello, Dolly, and Bye Bye Birdie, yeah. and 42nd Street, and Barnum, and George M. Uh, and then his mm-hmm. sister, Francine Pascal, updated the book when the show went to London in the 90s, when Mac and Mabel went to London in the 90s. And Francine Pascal wrote the... Um, Bayside High Stories? What did she write? Hold on. I wrote it down. She wrote, hold please, Sweet Valley High. That's what Francine Pascal oh, wrote. Sweet Valley High. Sweet Valley High. 
So Michael Stewart actually was the second book writer for Mac and Mabel. Uh, mm-hmm. He replaced Leonard Spiegelgas, uh, who had partnered with a producer named Ed Lester in 1971 on the idea. Now, Herman and Spiegelgas worked on the show for almost a year together before. I, I don't really know the details, but they sort of threw in the towel on, on the collaboration. And then Herman was like, Michael Stewart, come and help me. But interestingly, Michael Stewart wrote a book around all of the songs that Herman had already written, which feeds into a little bit of the disjointedness between the score and the script in that Herman really didn't change anything. These were the songs that fit with the original script. And once the script was updated, they really stayed pretty much intact. Um, Okay, so source material. Yes. Somewhat biographical, but also kind of yeah. fictionalized around the lives of Max Sennett and Mabel Norman. Um, yes, Max Sennett, uh, uh, silent movie director, Mabel Norman, silent film comedian. Star and director. And also, I mean, it's a weird kind of parallel to Sunday in the Park with George because that show does the same thing around George Seurat. That, like, a lot of the details in the first act of Sunday in the Park are not accurate to his actual life and what happened. Yeah, this sort so of fictionalized, weird, like, romanticized... Yeah, it's like a little bit hyped up. I mean, it's also like, mm-hmm. it's, it's historical fiction, kind of, but it also is like a lot of supposition. There's no like real documents of what happened in those days, but also like, the, right, there's some details that like, like Mabel Norman didn't like, she died another like 10 years after she and Max Sennett were finished, and she died of tuberculosis, so she didn't die of a drug overdose. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> crazy. Oh, uh, director, choreographer, Gower Champion, who of course, uh, also worked with Herman on Dolly. Produced by David Merrick, um, who we've talked about ad nauseum, the abominable showman. Um, any other notable people involved with um, the show? Yeah, scenic design is Robin Wagner. Robin Wagner designed the scenery for Merlin. Um, for, <laughs> I was thinking for things, <laughs> things I've seen, uh, Young Frankenstein, the producers. Crazy for You, Dream Girls, Angels in America, Forty oh Second Street wow. on the 20th Century, a chorus line, and Robin Wagner was the assistant designer on Hello Dolly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, orchestrations by Philip J. Lang, who's done a million shows, um, including Dolly, I, I believe, and maybe Mame. Um, also, this is kind of interesting and random, but um, recently a, a fellow passed away named Seymour Press. He was a woodwind, a Broadway woodwind player for decades and a long time music contractor. Uh, he was in the original Gypsy Pit and on the Mac and Mabel album, he's the one that plays the sax solo at the beginning of <laughs> Time Heals right. Everything, <laughs> which is iconic. It is. Bernadette and Seymour Press. Uh, whose name was Red because he had red hair. Um, okay. So cast notables talk about the cast. Well, Robert Preston. Is the first. Robert Preston, Broadway's original. I didn't want to Harold steal Bernadette Hill. Peters, but like, yeah, Robert Preston, right? The Music Man, I do it. <laughs> Bernadette Peters it should have been Mabel and Mac. The... <laughs> it really kind of is, though. But Bernadette yeah. Peters, the Ocean Spray commercial. <laughs> this pot cranberry tart and sassy. It's got a real zing, but I drink it when I'm feeling sultry. <laughs> and Briar's commercial? No. Cinderella with Brandy, Sun in the Bark, Into the Woods, and you get your gun. A little night music. Dolly. Oh, you want to talk about show stopping when I saw her in Hold on, you music? said Cinderella with Brandy before Into the Woods? Sorry. <laughs> I was just, these are the things that popped in my brain as I was typing. And just I was like, rattling oh, yeah, off from the top of your brain. <laughs> anyway, she, when I saw a little night music, 
in the middle of the scene before Son of the Clown, someone's phone went off. And right, the theater is like silent. And there's like, dee, 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 and they both like stop dead on stage. And I don't know, like, that's the thing where I think like, was it planned? Was it not? Because she picks the scene up literally from a line that is written that's like, before we were so rudely interrupted. <laughs> Which is the line as written, but the audience like lost their minds. It was whack. Anyway. Show oh my God. And how to handle so it. So Ber- um, now this is, this is one of Bernadette's early successes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of a, well, she had done George M with Joel Gray, but this is kind of before Bernadette was Bernadette. Yes. And yet she always seemed like she had that iconic female way about her. Always a star. Always a star. Some other actors in the show, Lisa Kirk played Lottie Ames. Uh, She was Broadway's original Lois Lane in Kiss Me Kate. Uh, Also, a Doris Walker replacement in Meredith Wilson's Here's Love. Rita Rudner was in the ensemble. I saw that when I was looking at ensemble people. Rita Rudner was one of them. And then also that there are two of the bathing beauties. One of them was named Crystal Chambers. And another one was named Prudence Darby. Just very fun names. Great names. Uh, Jerry Dodge was in the show, Broadway's original Barnaby Tucker. Uh, He he died in the middle of the run. He did? He died. He, it, I don't know if he, like it, I, his obituary just said something that he it was like chemical mispractice or something, but he like was sick with an infection and like died. What is up with tragic Barnaby deaths? You know about the Barnaby from the film? Wait, what? Barnaby from the film was murdered by a gay lover, but it was like a hate crime thing. Yeah, horrific. Oh God, <laughs> that's Horrible. really dark. We're getting dark early. Um, the dark. James, the, well, hey, the show is a little dark, so. Uh, who else? James Mitchell, who he was a dancer and then he turned into a soap opera star. He played William Desmond Taylor. Yes, exactly. He signed on in like 1979 to All My Children to be like a guest star. And then he stayed on the show until 2009. Oh, my God. Well, that, that that's the job that keeps paying the bills, though. Yeah. Uh, and also mm. Stanley Simmons, who sings When Mabel Walks in the Room, was like an old vaudeville star. What an iconic voice. Yeah. Uh, I- Igor Gavon was in the ensemble. He was Robert Preston's understudy and Broadway's original Ambrose Kemper. The show is like Six oh. Degrees of Dolly. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so there is a recording. Now, it does slap. Now, there's original Broadway cast recording. There's also a London cast recording, which was done years and years later. The, the original Broadway with Bernadette and Preston, I have to say, it's a little sloppy. Mm-hmm. Go on. Like... Robert Preston, of course, you you don't expect a lot of magical singing from Robert Preston. He can sell a song very well, but he's he's never been known as a a vocalist. But even on the recording and listening to it, the trumpets, the trombone, the chorus girls are really sloppy. It seems like they got in the studio and were like, get it done in an hour. Yeah. That does track. Oh, it's in hundreds of girls where all of the chorus girls just sound dead. In, like, the absolute flatness that is one girl in the ensemble that you can hear crystal clear. She put the, like, trill in there. Is that also what I heard? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, okay, hold on. There's also this. The blattiest trombone of all time in Time Heals Everything. Um, here's a couple of selections from the overture with like 
the trumpet's not nailing it. I mean, there's just there's just elements of it that I typically there's like an uh, an error or two on a cast recording. It's like, oh, they didn't catch that, or oh, they didn't do a second take for that. But it's like there's one of those in every song on this album, and it's very strange to me. Um, anyway, the, the songs are great. Um, I do I I still love the recording despite all of those uh, things. Now, let's talk about revivals because. Part of our, um, Marla and I decided early on that part of our prerequisite for being a flop is that a show really can't have um, uh, a cult following or a life beyond its original failure. Like we were just talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show. It doesn't qualify because it's, it was such a cult success. Um, now, this show has had several big productions post-original Broadway. And do you know the story about why it had a, a resurgence in popularity in the U.K.? Yes. Um, they did like a benefit concert in the early 90s or late 80s. Jerry Herman talks about it. Um, Jerry Herman's memoir is not the most interesting read, but it does every once in a while have a little nugget that just... Mm. So right. Then 10 years after Mac and Mabel opened and closed on Broadway, the most amazing thing happened. The British ice skating team of Torval and Dean skated to the overture from the original cast album when they won the 1984 Olympic gold medal for figure skating. That yes. event was broadcast on BBC television, and the very next day, the BBC was inundated with calls from viewers who wanted to know what the music was and where they could buy it. There was such a major run on the album in record stores that the record company rushed to re-release the album. It's sold uh, like crazy. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and made it to number six on the charts, which is unheard of for a show album, especially one that was 10 years old. Yeah. Suddenly, everyone was Mac and Mabel crazy. The show was a true cult hit in London, and people kept besieging me for a production. I would get letters from people in England who were almost indignant that there were no plans to produce the show. Well, where <laughs> is it? They would say to me. Is it ready yet? In 1988, Barry Michon... Don Pippen and I finally put together this big charity concert for one night only at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. We had dozens of British and American stage performers, a different star for every number. George Hearn sang Movies for Movies. Georgia Brown did Time Heals Everything. Tommy Toon tap danced to Tap Your Troubles Away. The audience was in heaven, and for me, it was pure bliss. Oh. The show was a one-night wonder. Sheridan Morley, who's the drama critic of Punch and the London theater correspondent for the International Herald Tribune, called the score one of the richest and most distinctive in the whole post-war history of Broadway and identified oh. me as the greatest working Broadway songwriter in the Irving Berlin tradition of sheer orchestral entertainment. Wow. All because of an ice skating duo. All because of an ice skating duo skating to the overture. That's crazy. Right? And that's probably the only reason there have been as many revivals as there have been. Never a Broadway revival, but, well, there was an encore, a City Center encore production before the pandemic. Okay, now, when the show ran on Broadway originally, it was nominated for some Tonys, but it did not win anything. Am I right? Not a one. It was nominated for eight Tonys. <sighs> now, one of those eight was not score. Isn't that crazy? Yes, and the two that were non-musicals. That were that were in best score. Like it really was like a slide to Jerry Herman. One of them was like 
an experimental theater piece that was like soundscapes and grunting and moaning and stuff. And then the other one was like a like hairstyle show about those. So like a rock I mean, that was a, that was a slight, definitely a slight, because sure. in most of the reviews, the score is generally praised with some exceptions. And perhaps that's why he was slighted. We'll talk about the quote unquote title song later. Yes. I wouldn't say the stinkers are that stinky though. Like, <laughs> no, but they are derivative. You're not wrong. Um, okay. Uh, just a quick, uh, I'm going to give a quick sort of plot synopsis. We had already talked about the show generally is kind of autobiographical. Max Sennett, uh, film director in Hollywood, Mabel Normand, uh, Mabel Normand was a model, I think, in real life, but in the musical they have her, she's a deli worker who's delivering a sandwich to Lottie Ames on the set, and uh, fireworks go off uh, when Mac meets Mabel. So the show begins with Mac sort of reminiscing about the good old days. Um, it, it starts in 1938, and anytime we go back to Mac kind of like reminiscing, it's he's in 1938, but the show kind of begins in 1911 during the first flashback. So Max Sennett is the king of Hollywood. He's filming a movie. Mabel delivers her sandwich. Lottie, for some reason, can't pay, and Mabel throws a fit, and that's why she's a brilliant actress. And Mac is like, uh, she's our next star. Um, so Mabel's a star. They all move from Brooklyn to Hollywood. Mac and Mabel fall in love, kind of, but not really. So the show starts off in a pretty standard romance kind of a way. Now, Mabel and another actor in the troupe, Frank, want to do more serious roles. You know, the Max movies are very slapstick, Keystone Cops kind of things. Mac isn't really interested in that genre, so he uh, he expresses to her he's not interested. Plus, he's not really interested in romance, which he also sings in a lovely song called I Won't Send Roses. So Mabel ends up meeting up with William Desmond Taylor, who is more of a serious filmmaker. Uh, Mabel finds out that Taylor had already asked Mac to loan her to his studio, but he turned her down unbeknownst to Mabel. So she's really upset about that. Mabel leaves. Intermission. Mabel comes back. We sing about it. Uh, Mac and Mabel have another falling out. Taylor gives Mabel heroin, and Mabel becomes a drug addict. Meanwhile, the talkies have come about. Lottie Ames is now a tap dancer. William Desmond Taylor is murdered. Mabel is the prime suspect. Max Sennett decides it's time to seal the deal with Mabel, but she's dead and curtain. Is that it? Did I miss anything? <laughs> I don't think you did. You remembered way more than I do. <laughs> well, those, I rem those details were the, the things you don't get by listening to the album, but I remember from seeing the production on stage because it's all pretty convoluted, especially because none of this shit happened. Yes. That's the major thing. Is like, again, like so many of the details were like made up. Yeah. Major plot points like the heroine. And I don't mean hero. <laughs> oh, right. No. Cause she, there, there's someone up the Mabel Norman to say who got very mad at the adaptation because they're like, she was not a drug addict and she died of tuberculosis. And then other sources do say that she suffered from addiction. She did have an addiction. I mean, if you're a drug Maybe addict, it is a little more likely that. you'll die of tuberculosis. No, that's true. Your, I think your immune system becomes weakened. I, either way, for a story that isn't, uh, you know, an iconic American fable, 
it doesn't make the strongest material to prop up a fluffy show. All right, so let's move into what exactly went wrong. What is the history of putting up this production? Let's talk about anecdotes and stories from, I know you've got some highlights from Jerry Herman's book, so let's hear some of that. Okay. I mean, you started earlier with the fact that the um, book writer left, and then they wrote a new book around all the songs that already existed. Yes. So what did we do wrong? One thing that was wrong was the big age difference between our stars. Mm. In real life, there was only about a six-year age difference between Max Sennett and Mabel Normand. Bob Preston was much, much older than Bernadette. Right from the beginning, some people noticed that and said to me, that's not a good match. But I wouldn't listen. I just ignored them. Mm. Both actors were so persuasive and so perfectly suited to their roles, it never occurred to me that their ages would be a problem. I don't think any of us even thought about it until we actually saw them on stage and in costume. Bob was a very attractive and virile man, but he looked like Bernadette's grandfather. <laughs> hey, we, we, we can accept a Henry Higginsy uh, love story, can't we? <laughs> and then, okay, but then My Fair Lady lives better, I think, personally, in the question mark of, like, is it a love story, is it not? Because then as yes. soon as you start to retroactively look back and you're like, oh, well, he's secretly gay and he hates women, and that's why he treats her like shit, and then she keeps coming back and he's being abused. <laughs> that's where My Fair Lady loses all the fun, okay? Yes, this is why Pickering knows exactly where to buy a dress for the embassy ball. Uh, a sash. Um, Ooh, maybe with a sash. Sash. Show ready. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then also it was a really interesting swap in that in that Lincoln Center production of My Fair Lady where, like, right, Eliza's written to be, like, 19, but then they actually cast a woman who was, like, the same age as Henry Higgins. Like, they were both, like, in their 30s, and there was a little more, like, stakes going on, a little more of that, like, pity, a little more, like, intrigue there. But we're not talking yes, about My uh, Fair Lady. <laughs> no, no, we're not. But I always want to talk about My Fair Lady. Um, <laughs> Clearly. Jerry Herman goes on. There was a bigger problem with the production. Gower did some brilliant visual effects to make the whole show look like old silent movies. He created this fantastic keystone cop sequence that was his pride and joy. The cops came running when a big fire broke out in a hospital. Bells and sirens went off, there were hoses and ladders everywhere, and crazed people were running around in every direction. It was a huge, spectacular piece of work and very cleverly done. The trouble was that Gower spent more time on this one production number than on the rest of the show. And it didn't work. Oh, uh, yeah, the Keystone Cop sequence ended up being mostly removed. That number took most of our rehearsal time and most of our preview time before Gower finally realized that you can't make living human beings on a stage look like old movie characters. That was a costly miscalculation. Mm -hmm. Which is also a weird, like, method thing to call back to, like, Hello, Dolly, because apparently Gower Champion took forever staging the Hello, Dolly number and getting that like absolutely right and then from there like moved on to the rest of the show wow so maybe just noting that like that's not always the best i guess hello dolly is more the heart of the actual show of that show where like the keystone cops is not the heart of mac and mabel that's not right 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 <laughs> this show is not called keystone cops the musical hello keystone cops <laughs> The set wasn't right either. Oh. Robin Wagner worked imaginatively with a very limited concept of Gower's, which was to set the action in the corner of a huge soundstage. 
That device seemed terrifically clever at the time, but proved to be much too static. Actually, it became boring. Those permanent angled walls of our set also made it impossible for us to use the flies to bring in new backdrops and changes of scenery. But by the time we realized that, it was too late. There were also problems with the book. Oh, yeah. It was a very bold and interesting piece of work, but I never felt there was enough romance in the first act. It took much too long to get the audience interested in the offbeat love story that was the heart of this piece. These were problems that could have been corrected out of town, the way we worked out the problems on all my earlier shows. But this time, the process didn't work. Instead, what happened out of town was a pure horror story. Yeah, it sounded like it for sure. Yeah. Definitely. The other major thing that happened was one of the places they went in previews was the Muni. So they went, I think, from like Los Angeles, like the Taper Forum, which is like a normal theater, to then the Muni. To the Muni, which is just enormous, yeah. 11,000 feet. Yeah, that's just crazy. The two weeks we were there, like they were were overperforming the show and it blew everything out of proportion. And then when they came back to like a normal theater, like everything was just like. Is it the Muni outside? Yes, it's an outdoor venue in St. Louis. Yeah, St. Louis. Again, I remember walking past there last time I was there. I've never seen anything there, though, but it's a famous venue. And, you know, to do an outdoor, to have an outdoor space, which is obviously the the biggest space you can have, and then to confine the entire thing to the corner of a box, it, yeah, it sounds like St. Louis was where things really started to go south. Um so I'm going to go back in time just a little bit to some of the earlier parts now, this story, I couldn't believe I stumbled across this. There was a change in producers early on. Michael Stewart has suggested a fellow named Joe Kipnis to join the project as a producer, but that ended up souring. Um, something about the two men had a bad time during the production of Seesaw in 73. So when Kipnis was removed from the production, David Merrick was brought on board to produce But Kipnis, because he was there from the beginning, demanded 10% of the eventual profits. Now, of course, we know in hindsight that there would be no profits, but Kipnis didn't know that. So Merrick, being the greedy bastard that he is, refused the deal until Kipnis, allegedly, sent a mob of gangsters to Merrick's office who then roughed up the elevator operator and slashed all of the furniture in Merrick's office. But the odd part about this whole ordeal is that these <laughs> literal gangster goons got the wrong office and actually slashed up all the furniture in Jack Schlissel's office down the hall instead of David Merrick's. So first first of all, <laughs> like the fact that they're still like, 42nd Street style gangsters roughing up the producer in 1974 is appalling. And number two, the fact that they got the wrong office is hilarious. I'm imagining that scene from the Lord of the Rings when like the ring reds come into the room and they all stab the pillows like across the street and they're all watching from the window. Yeah. But also, I don't know, not to think like David Merrick might have pulled some shit, but what if like David Merrick purposely put like the wrong address so that someone else's office would get vandalized? Well, they didn't work in the same building, and I, I, they were just, they were like next door to each other. Schlissel was also a a producer on uh, Mabel, I think, so I I think it was just a, and (laughs) a quote unquote, honest mistake. No, no, David Merrick's is uh, the next one over. Don't worry about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I wouldn't put it past Merrick at all. Yeah. 
Okay, so did you know there was a production in England with Imelda Staunton as Mabel? No. Uh, apparently that was in 1981. Oh. Uh, and Dennis Quilly was Mac. That, that uh, He was England's original Sweeney Todd. It didn't transfer to yeah. the West End, though. It was somewhere else in England. And then the thing with the ice skating team happened. Um, yeah. So there is a later 1995 West End production that I think is the other recording we were listening to. And yeah. that has an altered script that ends with Mac and Mabel together. It's like a fantasy that Max sees of them, like, getting married. Okay. Which like, is always how I the guess, ending was. Um, that's not how He always got a fan of, I promise you, a happy like ending. A, yeah. Even though you're deceased. Yeah. <laughs> not the word. <laughs> Even though you croaked. <laughs> um, yeah, but they changed it. Sorry. That was like a dream ballet thing where, like, I think the... The, the way that it was originally was that like I think it's kind of how it was in the Encores one where like he came on and sang the song and then he like looked up and there was like footage of her like he was like reminiscing of her in her like very young beautiful early days mm-hmm. and I was thinking back it was a little more like kind of like suggestive and poetic rather than actually like portraying this entire like dream ballet okay, of yeah, them she's getting still, married she still kicks the bucket okay yeah um, she's still dead but like it's like a yes it's still like him it's, it's I don't know I think there's something more enjoyable in the like suggestion rather than actually seeing it all played out. Especially at the end yeah, of the show. Yeah, because it's, it's too it's too expected. Through. Yeah, it's like it's a little too much. You know. So, you know, much. Bernadette was not the first actress cast as Mabel Normand. Um mm-hmm. there was a uh, uh, Marsha Rod and Kelly Garrett were both hired and fired before Bernie even came into the picture. Now, Marsha Rod supposedly was fired in two days into rehearsal, but the rehearsals were all a sham. Do you know about this? No. So Marsha Rod had been hired, but then they decided after they gave her the contract that they didn't want her. So they called her and said, oh, we're going to start rehearsals two weeks early, which seemed a little strange to her. And it was just like an excuse to like have her rehearse for two days and then be like, oh, she's not working out. Let's fire her. So that was, I mean, it's a really shitty thing to do to an actress. Um, but that's what they had to do, I guess, to get around the union or whatever. So Marsha Rod um, was fired. They had already ca- uh, found Kelly Garrett. and yeah, Kelly Garrett was, like, singing in, like, a cabaret downtown or something. Yeah. Yes, and she was, I think, uh, Herman probably saw her in a Sammy Kahn review called Words and Music. Um, and were like, this is this is our Mabel. We need her. So they get her to New York. They they get her out of her contract with the Sammy Kahn review, and they get her to New York after having the sham rehearsals to fire Marsha Rod, and then they find out that Kelly Garrett can't act at all. <laughs> so suddenly they they don't have a Mabel, and rehearsals have begun. So the critics at this point start calling the show Mac and Maybe. <laughs> And I, I went to see the uh, the Encores production of Mac and Mabel with my friend Debbie, and both of us were calling it Mac and Maybe Not. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very accurate. Um, yes, because then apparently, so they say, when Bernadette came into her first day of rehearsal, she's like, I heard this is called Mac and Maybe. <laughs> the pre-Broadway tryout in San Francisco and then L.A., um, actually, starting the pre-Broadway tryout in California was part of the reason that Gower Champion signed on to direct to begin with, because he was he had relocated to California. But later on, Champion was quoted as saying, 
I'll never open again in California. When you open in Boston or Detroit, people realize it's a show in progress. In California, your peers see it and expect it to be perfect. So uh, it also was bad. Um, you had said adjustments were made. The show went to the Muni next in St. Louis. Uh, obviously, the size of that space made it worse. Then the Kennedy Center in D.C. was the next out-of-town city. And legend has it that absolutely nothing was working anymore. So Gower Champion basically restaged everything, including sequences that were working just fine. So this is just one of those, you know, fix it until it's better, but fix it until it's dead kind of moments. Um, also, we will talk about this song in a little bit, but Gower Champion tried his damnedest to get Jerry Herman to cut that Mabel Dolly number. But Herman just clutched his pearls and flat out refused. But it probably would be a better show without that song. Um, when I I also thought an encore, and during that song, my friend just leaned over to me and said, "Imagine Hello Dolly, but everybody hates her." <laughs> so kind of like when Sally Struthers plays Dolly. Yeah. Um, exactly. That is a hilarious way of looking at it. Stay tuned for Mac and Mabel Part 2. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Follow us on Instagram at Flop of the Heap or email us at show at flopoftheheappodcast.com to suggest our next flop. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you happen to be listening, and be sure to leave us a comment. The Flop of the Heap podcast is produced by Marla Alpert and John Bow. Learn more about how you can support our floptastic endeavors by joining us at patreon.com slash flop of the heap podcast. For as little as $5 a month, you too can be a flop of the heap podcast supporter. Until next time, ta-ta.